Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 915 with Peter Sclafani. We talked today in our group about, you know, hey, operating with a negative bank balance. Well, we've all been there. We've all done that. We try not to do it frequently, but those things happen and they're tough on you. And it's growing up as a family. We knew when things were tough. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about pop menus, full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest partner at Making Raving Fans Hospitality Group, Peter Sclafani. Peter, are you feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely unstoppable. Yes, man. I cannot wait to get into today's conversation. And we're actually sitting here at the uh, Restaurant Systems Pro Elite 
what would you call it? Quarterly it's, meeting? It's like a mastermind group. Mastermind, yeah. And it's it's been really just motivating and inspiring and just hearing uh, the power of coming together, sharing knowledge, supporting one another. I, I've hosted my own mastermind groups in the past. I'm not sure why I got away from it. I think it's, I'm not a big fan of the digital masterminds. I like to be in person like what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just so inspiring what you guys are doing here. And I know this is going to be a great conversation because I've already heard some really inspiring stories about what you have done. So uh, I, I'm really excited for this conversation. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Make it better every day. Make it better every day. So that came from my mentor and a guy I used to work for named TJ Moran. And he was a, a really big restaurateur and businessman, originally from the Chicago area, but, but moved to Baton Rouge. Um, has this great story about all these things he did. Was in the paper business, got out of the paper business, and went into the the restaurant business, and he was the first franchisee of Roots Chris Steakhouse. Oh, okay. I thought and, the name sounded familiar. And he kind of put the franchise agreement together to get Ruth Fertel to actually franchise his restaurant. Then he became the largest franchisee of wow. Roots Chris Restaurant, then opened some other restaurants, and that's how I got involved with him. But that's one of the things that he preached every day was make it better every day. Always try to be a little bit better than you were the day before. See, what I love about that is this idea that we wait, we, so many people wait until things are just perfect. And if you just start and just make it better every day, mm-hmm. I, I love that approach because things are never going to be just perfect. Mm-hmm. Just start and just show up better every day. I mm-hmm. love that, man. Great way to get this thing started. So where does your story in hospitality start? I mean, you go way back. So yeah, you? my family's been in the restaurant business for generations. So my grandfather, um, who's Peter Sclafani, I'm the third. So he was um, senior um, he started, his family had a grocery store in New Orleans, in mid-city New Orleans, and um, he had a side job. He was a bookie. Okay. And he got into one of these card games with some famous guys from Chicago. All right. And he went all in and lost all his money. Oh, and man. if you don't have money, you can't book. Yeah. <laughs> so... um he took the back room of his family's grocery store and he created a little six seat restaurant called Pete Steaks. Okay. And this was 1946. Okay. And by the end of the year, he had taken over the entire block and the entire grocery store. And he's got some really cool stories about things he did and people he met, but he was there until 1958. Then he moved his restaurant to um, our family's rabbit hunting property, which is was quote unquote in the country, which is now called Metairie, Louisiana. It's about the same size as New Orleans, right adjacent to New Orleans. But he was the third restaurant to open in Metairie, and he opened a massive restaurant in Metairie. Um, his best friend broke the ground. His best friend was Rudy Valley, one of the famous actors back in the day. Okay. Broke the ground on that on that restaurant. And that was a really big restaurant in Metairie. Um, my dad eventually went off on his own and opened his own restaurant in a suburb called new Orleans East. And that's kind of where I came into the picture. He had a seafood market and he eventually went into catering and he turned his boiling room into a catering hall and then moved into a bigger, um, facility that had catering and restaurant together. It was a 10,000 square foot building and um i started working there when i was 13 okay so my brother and i and i think you've met my brother here 
So Gino, yeah, Gino, we grew up together in the restaurant business. Um, loved it. It was a mom and pop restaurant in every sense of the word. The whole family worked there, all my cousins and my aunts and, and everybody. And I just, I loved every minute of it. But my dad had always told me, you have to go to school, get an education. You need to get a quote unquote real job. Yeah. Yeah. He just thought the restaurant industry was so hard. It was hard on a family. It was just such hard work. He wanted me to have more. Yeah. It's funny. It reminds me, I remember telling my, my parents when I was in my teens, like probably, you know, 12 or 13 that I wanted to open my own restaurant someday. And the same thing, they're like, no, like (laughs) we work so hard. So you don't have to. And for those listeners who don't know, but I I also grew up in the restaurant Mm -hmm. industry, but yeah, our parents tend to push us out of it. Like we're doing this. So you don't have to, right? Yeah. But you got called right back in. So I went to LSU. I got a degree in finance, but while I was there, I realized my real passion was the restaurant industry. And up until college, I'd always worked front of the house. Mm-hmm. I was a, a bus boy and a, and a waiter and a bartender and even pulled some managing shifts. And we worked, I mean, it was a family business. So we worked in the kitchen. We got whole fish and we would clean fish and butcher meat. So I knew how to do all, all that, but I would not call myself a chef. But coming out of college, going back into the business, I threw myself into the kitchen and primarily self-taught. So my dad was a chef and his dad was a famous chef in New Orleans. So I learned that way, but I also bought every cookbook I could afford. I went out to eat every night. Um, back in the day, we used to have a thing called a VCR and I would video <laughs> um, cooking shows during the day and come home and watch them at night and just did everything I could to learn what there was to know about about cooking. So what was calling you to the back of house? What was the draw? What was the appeal for you at that time? Um, I just, when I was in college, I had to, I cooked and I would cook for dates and people loved it when we cooked. And I knew a lot about food. We always went out to great restaurants to eat. And I just, I was a foodie before that term was, you know, popular, but I loved that. And I loved taking these seemingly random ingredients and putting them together. And at first it was, I didn't know how they went together, but as you started studying, I would just study recipes. And so in Louisiana, there's a thing about the Trinity, um, onion, celery, and bell pepper, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, oh, well, practically every recipe starts with that. So you start to learn to build the foundations of flavor and you start to look at different cuisines and see they're all basically the same they all start with a lot of these same ingredients so in france it might be onion celery and carrots that's what i was thinking you know like, a mirepoix. Was, yeah. yeah and then sofrito and italian and in spanish cuisine and what's sofrito what is that it's the same it's like is it the same onions and onion, celery and, and carrots, carrots and garlic okay. and parsley you yeah. know it's the the base flavor for so many things and so i started to learn how those things came together and i just I loved that and I loved the creativity and I loved going to restaurants and I wouldn't call it stealing recipes. I would call it being inspired you by can't restaurants. Steal yeah. food. I mean, it's meant to be shared. It's right. meant to be so inspiring. It's I would go to, be inspired yeah. and say, wow, I never thought of putting those things together. I love that presentation. I, I always and, get a little irritated when talk, people talk about stealing recipes. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, it's food. It's like, right. like it's like the one thing it's, it's sustenance. It's yeah. life. It's that's, meant. That's why I joke about it. Cause yeah. everything's been cooked before. Exactly. So exactly. it's just, it's just kind of funny, but 
And also, it's not your recipes that's going to make right. you successful. And like, that's another thing. I mean, is, does it contribute? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you need to have good food? Absolutely. But that's not enough. So that's the, that's the, not mm-hmm. going to be what makes you famous. There's a know? famous New Orleans restaurant family, the Brennans. Yes. And love their restaurants and just great people. But if you go into any of their restaurants and you ask them for a recipe, they'll go print it and give yeah. it to you. And they were never afraid of somebody stealing a recipe. Why do you think that? Why is that? Well, because I know what it's like when we train somebody, we show, we stand over them, we show them they use the same ingredients and everything, and they still can't get it yeah. consistent every day. Exactly. So it's like nobody's going to go and start their own restaurant stealing your. Yeah. And what percentage stuff? of people go out to eat because they don't know how to cook? Right. Most people know how to cook or they know how to get mm-hmm. food. They, they're doing it because they want the experience that maybe they have a relationship with the restaurant that they, they, they there's so much more than just the food. Right. So I, yeah, I could pound the, the crap out of that, but I'm, we can move on. <laughs> so we started, I started in the kitchen and, um, started learning a lot, started experimenting and it started to catch on. Even though I was in a suburb of new Orleans that you were probably lost if you were there. Um, and a local food critic came in and gave me a great What year is that review. At this it's in the nineties. It's in the mid nineties. Because you graduated and, uh, college in two thousand ninety. No, sorry, nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. So yeah, it's mid nineties. Yeah. And um then we got a an opportunity to open a restaurant in the French Quarter. Is this your family? You it's my family. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's my mom and dad, my brother and I. Got it. So we opened a restaurant in the French Quarter. And up to um, this point you're on the the outskirts of New Orleans. Right. So now we're in the French Quarter, but the French Quarter is a different ball game. It's tourist based and most tourists know they want to go eat at Commanders or they want to go eat at Emeralds or they want to eat at Bayona. They know that ahead of time. So for me being unknown, I was known in New Orleans, but not outside of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So to break into the the business there, it was tough. So we, we did okay, but, um, it was a it was the restaurant struggle every day, and then my mom passed away unexpectedly, and it kind of mm. tore the family apart. She was kind of the glue that held it together. And what was her role at the restaurants? Um, she was the matriarch of yeah. the restaurants and kind of held everything together. She wasn't in the kitchen; she was always in the front, but she held it together. We did a lot of catering. She planned every wedding and banquet, but um, I was. Back then, you used to place um, employment ads in the classifieds, and I was making sure my ad was showing up in the right spot. I didn't want my ad for a cook showing up under clerical, yeah. so I was checking it, and I would see this ad every day. It was the LSU football coach wanting to open a New Orleans Italian restaurant in Baton Rouge, Okay, and I graduated from LSU and said, you know what? They're asking for me, and my wife convinced me why don't you go apply? Yeah. Why don't you? And I'm like, I'm not leaving new Orleans and going to Baton Rouge, <laughs> but she's like, you ought to go apply anyway. Let's see what happens. And so I went to apply. This is 1998. This is 98. Got so it. I go to apply and I'm thinking, I'm not going to work for a football coach. And, uh, but at the same time you said it was calling to you. Right. But I get there and I find out it's this guy, TJ Moran. And I find out he's like the Brennans of, Baton Rouge. He's okay. got Roots Chris Steakhouse, TJ Ribs. He's got a franchise of Ninfa's Mexican restaurant there. Plus, he has restaurants all over the country. And um, I tell my wife, you know, I wasn't planning on coming here, but this could be a big deal. So to to shorten the story a little bit, I I decide to to um, 
join TJ Moran and we're going to open Donardo's restaurant. I'm going to be the chef and a guy named Ruffin Rodrigue is going to be the guy in the front of the house. He had played football for LSU, very charismatic and um, very popular person in Baton Rouge. He's going to be the front of the house guy. And so we opened this restaurant October 5th, um, 1998, and Jerry DiNardo, the coach who the restaurant's named after, starts losing. Losing football, football games. games. Yeah. Because I was going to say, I see Muffinos on your LinkedIn profile. Is yeah. that? Yeah, Rafinos. We're so, getting there? Yeah, we're getting there. So, <laughs> okay, I was a little confused. He starts losing, and you don't lose football games at LSU yeah. and become popular. So, shortly thereafter, he's no longer the coach, but he's. He's still around, and then he decides to take a job with the XFL out of Birmingham. So when he leaves, Ruffin and I are able to buy his portion. He owned 20%, so we bought 10% each of the restaurant. Um, Hard lessons because TJ, although he was very wealthy, made us go to a bank, um, you know, take that note personally. And if we didn't make enough money in the month to get a distribution, we couldn't pay our note. So we had some, some real lessons in business to learn. So why do you think he did that? Um, he was, he was a great guy and my mentor, but he was a hard ass and he really wanted us to learn tough lessons. Nobody should give you anything, you know? And, um, we kind of felt like, man, we're, we're working our asses off every day, building this restaurant and you're not going to help us out with the money to buy it. So it was, it was real world tough lessons. And so we, uh, so we, we buy the 20%, the 10% each. We changed the name to Rafino's. So popular wine, but my partner's name was Ruffin, but he's a Kunas from Thibodeau. So we make him Italian by calling it Rafino. And um, things start to start to do well. And the restaurant's doing well it's on the south side of town which back then was sort of out of the way but the area starts developing and more people are moving out there and it, it becomes a great location yeah I, I, i'm loving the story mm-hmm. but i i feel like i want to get more out of going back to, to talk about your earlier days mm-hmm. I'm, I'm obviously we're going to bookmark this and we're going to pick up the conversation but up to this point i mean growing up in a restaurant family are, are there any key mentors or key lessons or what what is your mindset up to this point from from growing up in this restaurant family? Who do you think influenced you the most? So it started out being my dad, yeah. you know, because he learned from his dad and his brothers um, all worked in the business. My uncle had a cooking school in Metairie, and it was that and having the legacy of, you know, my grandfather's restaurant was really big and really, really popular it was one of the most popular restaurants in new orleans even though it was in metairie like all the movie stars went there presidents ate there it was a it was a big deal restaurant before i was born and so it was that legacy i think that really motivated me to want to carry that that on but then i became influenced by other people um that they didn't really know. So like John Fulce, Chef John So Fulce, that they didn't, the people didn't know that you were influenced by them? They, they didn't know. Like John, I've told him since, but like John Fulce is a famous chef from um, Louisiana. And, uh, you know, he unintentionally, he influenced me a lot. 
So your dad and John Foles. Mm-hmm. Before we start talking about John Foles, what was it? Give me something that just really ingrained into you to this day that your dad taught you. Like, what did he teach you specifically? So I would say it's tenacity. Mm. But back then we used to say we're we're not smart enough to know when to quit. Mm. So like I think that's what happens to a lot of people is they quit when the going gets tough. Yeah. And in the restaurant business, the going's tough always all tough. the time. <laughs> yeah. It's always tough. Yeah. And you know, we we talk today in our group about, you know, hey, operating with a negative bank balance. Well, we've all been there. We've all done that. We try not to do it frequently, but those things happen and they're tough on you. And it's, you know, for us growing up as a family, we knew when things were tough. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're actually, there was a story that was told. Um, it was uh, Chris's story. What's his last name? Say it for me real quick. Sean Berger. Sean Berger. Chris Sean Berger, uh, who's hosting us here in uh, Southern Wisconsin, Northern Illinois. I don't know where we are exactly, mm-hmm. but we're in between Milwaukee and Chicago. And, uh, he was talking about when early on when he was a part of the mastermind, he, he like started to break down into tears. He's like, I think I'm going to have to close all my businesses. My checking accounts are in the negative. And then you guys all kind of chuckled. And we said, all kind of laughed. I'm like, yeah. welcome to the club. This yeah. is- <laughs> if, you, if your checking accounts don't go into the negative yeah. at least once, mm-hmm. you know, you're not, you're not pushing hard enough. Right. Um, so yeah. So, so that tenacity of yeah. never giving up and you know, you may be smarter than me, but you're not going to outwork me. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just that thing being the first one there and the last one to leave and working all the time. And I think that was the the culture back then. It's changed a little bit now, but that's where my success came from. Yeah. What about standards and discipline? Like, where was that in your family? Like, as far as expectations and stuff. So, you know, it's it's harder when you're the, the kids of the owners. Yeah. Because they're. 10 times harder on you than they are on everybody else. So, and it was our, the restaurant was named after the family. It was Mm -hmm. our family name. So you had to protect that at all costs. So that's where those standards came from is that you protect your, your reputation was everything. It takes you years to build it and minutes to ruin it. Yeah. And that's so true. It it literally can take like years, if not decades to build a reputation, to build trust and one bad move, Mm -hmm. one bad piece of publicity can just send you down the tubes. Mm -hmm. That's so stressful. So that's where those standards came from. But we didn't really have systems. We were the system. We did everything. We were there. You just knew how to do it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of changes as you move on into your career. Mm-hmm. Well, so. that's one thing that TJ Moran taught me, okay. but let's, so but the, but John Foles, John we go Foles, to, yes. we go to, um, my dad calls me one day, I'm still at LSU and he's like, Oh my God, I went to this restaurant. You have, we have to go try it next, next Sunday. Don't make any plans. We're going. And it was in Donaldsonville, Louisiana. It's it was under the Sunshine Bridge, so you would cross the Mississippi River on the Sunshine Bridge and then turn around, and it was like they called it in the shadows, but it was almost underneath it. It's a little plantation home, but um, we go there and we try the food, and I was completely blown away. I mean, the whole family were just sitting there in awe, like, "Oh my God, this food is so amazing and so incredible," and. They, uh, the manager found out we were in the restaurant business and we're like, Oh, can we take a tour? Can we go see the kitchen? And we go into the, 
we go into the kitchen and I'm now friends with the chef that was there then. But I mean, I'm expecting to see a full brigade of everybody in their white toques and there's two guys and a dishwasher back there. And I'm like, what? How did you put out this kind of food, you know, with two people and a dishwasher? And then they showed us like what they did and how the menu was structured and how they prepared this, these sauces. And it was the first time I was really seeing emulsified butter sauces and I hadn't seen them before. And, you know, so we're talking to the chef about like, Oh my God, these are so amazing. It's like, yeah, we come in every day. We make these sauces. We keep them up above the stove to keep them warm. And we're like, God, how do you make those? He's like, well, John published the cookbook. Every recipe we use is, you know, in the cookbook. And so we went and bought the cookbook and, um, you know, went and practiced and practiced and learned and, you know, so like one simple thing that they did was a lot of their pan sauteed dishes were all cooked on a flat top griddle. Okay. So we went and bought a five foot used flat top griddle and started cooking all our things we used to cook in a skillet, fish and veal and all those things like that and started cooking them on a flat top. So, and, I mean, I'm assuming instantly that just increases the surface area so you can cook mm-hmm. a whole lot more faster. And Is that the secret? And you don't have to watch it quite as closely on a saute pan that's so hot. You've got to really stick there and and watch everything. So you can only cook so many dishes at a time. Here, we could put lots of fish on, say, at one time. What's keeping that from spilling over the edge of a flat top if you put a sauce on it? Oh, not a sauce, but like cooking the fish. So we just put a little butter oil there and cook the fish and cook veal and cook some steaks. And you can cook everything on this flat top and... It takes one guy now to do that instead of a couple of guys. Yeah. On, I mean, we still have saute and still doing sauces and things, but just those kind of things changed the way that we we did things. And I would go to Lafitte's Landing frequently, and one time I saw John had a smoker. And so I said, you know what, let me call Chef Foles and see if he'll talk to me about this. And he spent like 45 minutes on the phone telling me everything, sending me catalogs. He even told me, he's like, look, Peter, this is what I bought. It's kind of expensive. Let me tell you how to take an old refrigerator. You go to a junkyard, get an old refrigerator. And because we wanted to cold smoke things, I wanted to cold smoke soft shell crabs and have them still be alive when I took them out the smoker. Wow. And so he told me how to do that using an old refrigerator. And so we made a smoker using a refrigerator. But he was just so free with the information. Do you think there was a period in the industry where people got close off with their knowledge and information do i did i imagine that um well i think it depends but like and you see in this group we all very openly share yeah and it's what um I, I think it what's makes the industry great because we know you're not just going to my restaurant to eat every day i love my restaurant and i don't eat at it every day so you know we share we share guests and we share knowledge and sometimes we share products and like in new Orleans in the French quarter, you ever ran out of anything? You could go to any restaurant and go ask them, Hey, can I borrow a tenderloin? And they just give you a tenderloin. Yeah. So we recently had Alan Beadle on the show from uh, Patrick's uh, Irish pub and eatery in New Hampshire. And he was talking about the significance of the mastermind and he was talking about how he wasn't a mastermind locally with a local restaurant tours, but he said there's something special about getting into a mastermind with people across the nation, there's more value there in his opinion. And the reason for that is because I think when you're, when you're in a community with people, you have to be careful about what you say just 
to certain people because mm-hmm. you might offend somebody or you might insult somebody. It's almost too close, right? You can't, it's, there's politics, I think, get involved mm-hmm. when you're in a local mastermind. But when you have a, a, a nationwide mastermind, you can get into like the nitty gritty of certain situations that you might not feel comfortable sharing with right. somebody who shares a neighbor with you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't talk about somebody who might be a threat to you or, mm-hmm. you know, you get, get to play those politics. Do you think there's something to be said about a mastermind that I, that, that, um, is spread out? Is there more value there? Yeah. Because they're not your direct competitor. Yeah. So like we might talk about marketing here, and we may get some great insight on on new ways to market, but I don't want to go share that with my local guys because I don't want the them same using methods. it against me. Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably what was going on with you being from New Orleans and John being in Baton mm-hmm. Rouge. Is I mean, going back to the nineties, um, that's before the internet, really. So like you're, you know, you're you do that's a far. What is that like a hundred miles? 90 miles. Or, yeah. 90 well, 90 miles. miles between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. He's kind of splitting the difference. So but, it's far enough apart yeah. that, you know, you guys still have different mm-hmm. markets, right? Do you think but, that maybe played into well, why? He but was, he's very open that yeah. he's been um, inspired by a lot of other people. Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, and John and I have become really good friends. So it's just, um, it was fun to see that. But when he really didn't know me that well, he was just so open to sharing those things. Mm-hmm. Then I went to a, uh, I was part of the American Culinary Federation and he did a seminar at an event one time and his book was called The Evolution of Cajun and Creole Cuisine. And he did a seminar on that and it was, I mean, I, it, I just, I remember it so vividly today, but he came and he started with um, shrimp sauce piquant, a very classic kind of Cajun dish that has Spanish and French influence in it. And so he makes this sauce piquant and then he says, okay, so now at lunch, I'm going to serve this over rice and we're going to charge nine 99 for it. He's like, but now at dinner, I want to get a, a higher price point for it. And I want it to be more refined, but I want people to still get the flavor of sauce piquant. So he takes a strainer and he strains the, the Trinity, you know, and the vegetables out to just get the broth, finishes it with a little butter, cooks a piece of red snapper, grills a couple of shrimp, puts that on top, sets it over this sauce, um, the shrimp um, sauce piquant sauce, and then tops it with a little hollandaise. And he's like, now I can sell this for $26 at night. You eat it, you get the flavor of Louisiana of sauce piquant, but it's become an elevated dish. Mm. Well, I mean, that, that was one of those turning points for me. Like, this is how I can elevate my cuisine. How can I take the things that are the flavors that everybody knows, but how do we present them in a different, more interesting and refined way? Yeah. And you're also, I feel like, what's the word? Like units of work too. You don't have to recreate an entire mm-hmm. dish for the evening. You're taking something that you already created for lunch mm-hmm. and you're repurposing it. It's right. like you're not just having to start from mm-hmm. scratch. Like I think this is smart from a labor perspective too, right? You yeah. got to think about labor on top mm-hmm. of that. Uh, any other big lessons from this, this, well, I think that those are the, those are the biggest ones because really at this time I'm just like struggling to hold on business, yeah. you know, for us is, what we think is good. Yeah. And we jumped around a little bit. So on your timeline, you're still working for the family business, still working for the family business, but, um, and still doing a lot of catering and parties with the restaurant going at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, um, doing that, then moved to Baton Rouge. Now TJ had a lot of other restaurants, way more systematized, 
But I would say his systems were more primitive than what we have today because back then it was Excel and we did food costing on Excel and we did inventory on Excel and we did, but we didn't know how to make Excel talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when food prices change, you're not updating your recipe costing cards because food prices can change daily. Yeah. Especially right now. Yeah, exactly. So I learned a lot of those systems and his restaurants were so much busier than what I was so used speci- to. So this is kind of an evolution for you and your timeline mm-hmm. and your story. What were the key things that TJ was doing that you were not doing at this point? Was it just the fact that he was using technology, spreadsheets and things like that, equations to determine cost and, and pricing and things like that? Or So just- I, I think he was doing that, but I came from a restaurant family that was a business secondarily. Well, you also have a and, degree in finance. Right. So he, I'm sure you had a P&L. Yeah, but he came from a uh, a business background and then got into the restaurant business. Okay. And so I think he just thought about it a little bit differently. Yeah. We didn't do, in my family, we didn't do inventory. You know, we knew what we bought, but we didn't do that. And with TJ, it was every month we were doing a full, in, I mean, we counted plates and silverware and glasses. And Why is that so important to do that? Um, because it allows you to really know your business. So let's just take silverware, for instance. When you count silverware, even if it's monthly and, you know, you're losing 90 forks. Well, that's three forks a day. Yeah. And what's, one, puts co- it what's in, one fork cost? It puts it in perspective. I mean, yeah. two bucks, like, you know, that's, it becomes real money. It's things you have to think about and how are you missing it? And what are you doing? What are, what's plate breakage? And then it causes you to think about where are the plates breaking? And so they were breaking by the dish station. So we started to put mats in front of the dish station. Yeah. And now we're not losing plates. And it, it caused us to be more business minded. Yeah, really just like it's not about the money coming in sometimes. It's mm-hmm. about the money going out, right? And we, we're so focused on top line revenue, we forget about the bottom mm-hmm. line. It, well, but I do think top line is really important. And oh, that's sure. one thing TJ would preach to me. He would say, your job is to put asses in seats. If you can put asses in seats, I can make money. And so that's what we had to, that was our primary focus is building sales every day. And, um, you know, trying to, trying to get those restaurants full and then running a responsible operation, making sure your costs were in line, making sure you weren't, um, having refires, you weren't having waste, you know, and when you're busy, everything, it's actually easier than being slow. Why is that? Um, it's, it's the same work, but like your food's not going to go bad when Mm. you're busy, when you're slow, You've got to really watch rotation carefully. I mean, when you're busy, you're getting stuff every single day. Yeah. Nothing's sitting on the shelf. Everything's moving. And you get better pricing. You get you get everything. I mean, everything becomes better as you get busier. Yeah. And um, as a former commercial pilot, having to study to become a commercial pilot, I had to take a class called Human Factors. And there's data that supports that in periods of moderate stress, 
we operate more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain level. If you get too slow, if you get lackadaisical and you tend to make more mistakes because you're just not a certain level of stress is healthy. It, mm-hmm. it makes you on it. It makes you much more aware. But if, if things are slow, like like think about it. anytime you've gone to a restaurant, you walk in, there's like you and maybe two other people in there and it takes five minutes for them to greet you. Absolutely. It, it happens all the time. All the but time. when it's busy, they're on it. They're right mm-hmm. there. They're, they're, just, they're just much more aware. And it, I think it probably holds true to like, finances and books as well. Right. Uh, so you said something about butts and seats and he said, if your job, TG said, if you're tri- it's your job to put butts in seats, what were you doing to put butts in seats then? This so is again, he, the late nineties pounded this into my head. It's about consistency. Mm. He had this thing. He would say one plus two equals always, especially when we were open in the restaurant. He would tell me one plus two equals. always. What does that mean? Everybody will come in and try a new restaurant once. Yep. So if they come in and it's good once, they'll come back again. Yep. If you can give them the same experience, this consistent experience, again, now they'll be, they'll be a regular. They'll yeah. come back all the time. But it was about consistency. He's like, and consistency, like he wanted us to be great, but he's like, you don't even have to be great. You have to be consistent. And if you look at especially chain restaurants, and, you know, people disparage the chains all the time. Um, I won't mention any, but you know the ones I'm talking about. You're yeah. like, man, why do people go there? Well, they go there because they're consistent. Yeah, not just in that one store, but no matter which location you go mm-hmm. to. If you're, tra- I mean, I deal with this a lot when I travel. Uh, when you're on the road, you don't know a good restaurant if, if it's a local restaurant. Mm-hmm. You, you're constantly rolling the dice. But if you're on the road and you see a Texas Roadhouse, you know that that's going to be the same experience no matter mm-hmm. which Texas Roadhouse. And that's one of the better chains for the record. I chose that one. Right. They, they, they treat their people I amazingly. Do, I, I think yeah. so. Yeah. So, um, and so he preached that consistency all the time. And then he would tell me, you know, you can be the greatest chef ever, but if you can't get other people to cook your food the same way you're doing, then you haven't won. Mm. Like the restaurant has to be just as good when you're not there than when you're there. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of up and coming chefs forget because they worry about how good they are and what they can do. But when do you get that? When do you get your day off? When do you get to take a vacation? When do you get that quality of lifetime? You have to be able to train someone else to do it the same way that you do it. Yeah. Um, and th- there's a number. I think John Taffer did an interview with Gary Vanerchuk, and they talk about that. If you get somebody to come back, you know, if you can get them to come back the second time, they're like 30% more likely to become a mm-hmm. repeat customer. If you get them to come back a third time, they're like 77% more mm-hmm. likely to be a regular customer at that point. I don't know why exactly. I think people just are, are we, we want to be creatures of habit. Most mm-hmm. of us, a minority of us want to go out and eat at a different place every day because we're, we're thrill eaters. Mm-hmm. But most people just want consistency. They want familiarity. They want relationships with the staff and they, they want it to be able to, they want that, they don't want anxiety every time they go out. They're spending mm-hmm. money, you know? I think that it, it's tied to that, that like if you can get somebody to come back three times, they're like 77%, I think is the number, more likely to be a long term. And that's guess. what we would preach to our team is that our goal is to get somebody to come back again. Yeah. Was that meal, was that experience good enough for them to come back again? We have to do it better than the next guy to get them to want to come back to us again because yeah. it was about repeat guests. And we would say... So we would talk about regulars. Mm-hmm. Here's, I used to have this definition of what a regular was. One, we either knew their name or we called them 
something. Like there was this one lady we didn't know, but we called her the catfish lady because she got catfish. Yeah. Like, but you know their name and they usually get something that's a little unique or a little special. Regulars don't order things Straight on the menu up, yeah. the way they, they are. Oh, I want my potatoes extra crispy. I want no onions on this. I want, you know, they have that thing. And so we would teach people instead of complaining about, oh, here's these pain in the ass guests who want the, I'm like, that's your regular. That's yeah. your bread and butter. Yeah. That's the person who comes. They come in so much we know their name. Yeah. That's what you want. You want everybody to feel like it's their restaurant. So we would encourage that, not let people complain about it because yeah. we wanted so many regulars. Yeah. So being a numbers guy, being in the industry for so long, understanding the importance of regulars and consistency, are you familiar with the the law of diminishing returns? Mm-hmm. So where does that play into consistency and regulars? Like, Because eventually you have to change according to the law mm-hmm. of diminishing returns. Do you want to explain it for the listeners? Well, so... Um so the the way I explain the law of um, the law of diminishing returns to people, I use like fertilizer. So you can plan a, a plan, even if it's crops, you can plan it, and if you don't fertilize it, it's going to grow and yield X amount. If you add some fertilizer, it's going to yield more than X. So then you would think, well, if I keep adding more and more fertilizer, I'm going to get more and more production. But eventually, you add too much, and it kills the plant. So that's the law of diminishing returns. We will also talk about it in terms of labor. So I can have my kitchen staffed where I can have one person per station. But if I'm going to be busy, I can add one and a half per station, have some floaters, or I can have two per station. Well, at some point, you put too many people on the line where you can't get anything done and everybody's in the way. So that's the law of diminishing returns. But um, So I... That makes sense. The way I understand it is eventually, no matter what you do, no matter how consistent you are, eventually people will just stop showing up. So what we, so TJ would, I told you, he just pounded this consistency into my head. But yet the motto he taught me was make it better every day. Mm. So I had a real quandary with that. Like, how am I going to make it better every day if I'm trying to be this consistent? So how? We did it through specials. Mm. So if it was on the menu, it was as if that recipe is written in stone. You don't tweak it. You don't do anything. You produce it 10,000 times the same way and then 10,000 times again the same way. But on specials, you could do whatever you wanted. Mm. So we could go and try new things. And I came from a background where we changed specials every day. Like I was, I wanted to be creative and I wanted to, to try things and experiment. But he's like, so if you do a good special, how is somebody going to tell somebody else about it? So we started to run specials for a little bit longer. So if a special was popular, we'd let our guests know, oh, we're going to keep this around for a couple of weeks. So that way they could come back and try it. Maybe take something off the menu that is a staple that's underperforming and replace it with a special that knocked it out of the park. Eventually. That's what we would do. So we would get these specials that were so good. Then we'd take lower performers on the menu and replace them with the specials. Mm. Now, sometimes that's where good dishes go to die is on the menu um, because people come in and want the specials. So sometimes we let it, if it dies on the menu, then we take it back off and we run it as a special occasion. Okay. So thinking about this, make it better every day too. Mm -hmm. We we were talking about the significance of inventory monthly, right? Mm -hmm. And some people would argue even like 
weekly is probably no, we do better. weekly now yeah exactly but, but what happens when you start paying attention when you're taking inventory you start you start seeing trends you start seeing numbers and i think people get so caught up that it's not just the food with consistency it's operations it's 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 relationships it's it's so much more than just the food it's it's how can we change what we're doing to now start affecting the bottom line not the top line mm-hmm. like putting mats down like putting a magnet in the trash mm-hmm. to collect silverware like all these little things you can start to do and i think that is very much under I don't know. There's not enough attention to that part of it. Make it better every day. Systems, process, efficiencies, technology. Just how can you be more streamlined? How can you do more with less? Right. Well, let me tell you another thing about TJ. So when I first was going to make that um, jump to leave New Orleans and go to Baton Rouge and work for TJ Moran instead of my family, um, I realized my family had had made a living in the restaurant business. We were not poor. We went to private schools and did all that. But we were we were middle class. We you know we were watching every penny because you never knew if next month was going to be a slow month or not. Yeah. But when I met TJ, he knew how to make money in the restaurant business. So when he first came to try out my restaurant, when he was thinking about hiring me, he took his um, tour bus. Yeah. He had a million dollar bus that he took, put some people in and took down to come see me. He had a plane and a yacht and four or five homes and he knew how to make money in the restaurant business. So I was determined. I didn't know how long I would last working for him, but I was determined to learn everything I could about how you make money in the restaurant business. And that's what I realized it was, was those systems. It's doing inventory. It's coding invoices. It's watching every single penny that comes in so what do you mean by coding invoices that's something we've never talked about in the show before so it's how the the items on your inventory end up on the p l they're assigned a number code for the general ledger i don't want to bore everybody to death with accounting (laughs) but so you would take each item of um on an invoice and we would write a code next to it and that's how you would put it into QuickBooks or whatever, so it would go to the correct category. So, is this your, this time with TJ the first time you started using software like QuickBooks? Um, he had his own accounting software. I used QuickBooks after I got it. Had let had left TJ. So but, it's just the minute little details down to the, just tracking mm-hmm. everything, having a code for everything, having a place right. for everything. It's, well, he it's mise en place. It's yeah. beyond the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So. Like I said, TJ was a businessman, and so he had multi-units, and he had a big infrastructure. So he had his own in-house CPA, mm. and that's who I would go to. And then he had um, he had in-house accountants in each restaurant. So the in-house accountants would handle all the payroll and the um, and the AP and those kind of things. So I got to I wanted to know what they were doing. If I was responsible for the P and L. I needed to know where the numbers were coming from. And so that's what I learned. And they brought me in and said, okay, here's a general ledger. Yeah. The general ledger will normally scare most people off when you look at that. Yeah. But I was determined to stick it because remember tenacity Yeah. and not being smart enough to know when to quit. I stuck it out and learned all this accounting and really think like I had a familiarity with it from getting a degree in finance, but this was the real deal. Um, you know, accounting and really sunk my teeth into it and learned where every number 
came from. Okay. And then, then so, we had a guy who was the president of TJ's company who ran it for him, Stan Harris, who now is the president of the Louisiana Restaurant Association. And Stan taught me a lot. Okay, now's a great time to take our first break. I just realized we haven't taken a break yet because I'm so lost mm-hmm. in the conversation. Uh, to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to talk, to really drill down anything we haven't talked about as far as what it comes to numbers or when it comes to numbers, and then we'll also talk about what Stan taught you. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often, Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And you just started talking to us about really how working for TJ helped you focus so much on the numbers. And there's just things that you were paying attention to in reference to finance and numbers that you never really focused on before. And then also you introduced us to Stan. Is it Harris? Was Stan Harris. Yeah. yeah. So any other things on the numbers? I mean, you really emphasize the numbers. I think you kind of drilled it home pretty well is there anything that you'd start doing during this time that and i think it's worth mentioning too that you were at rafino's Mm -hmm. until uh for 20 years 20 years yeah Mm -hmm. 2019 is when you got when you Mm -hmm. you close it or sell it i sold it okay um so let me tell you what stan taught me yeah so i was having a food cost issue and i i or a profitability issue and i felt like my p and l was off um and I should be making more money. And so I went to go see Stan and Stan's like, I agree. You should be making more money. And he's like, how much do you think you're off? And at that time I thought I was about $20,000 off in this month. And he's like, I agree. I think you're about $20,000 off. How many points is that? Like, like relative to what you usually make? Um, I don't know. Five points. Okay. So, um, he was, uh, so I'm like, I don't know where it is. He's like, where do you think it is? And I'm like, you know, people are always complaining about linen. I think it's in linen. He's like, all right, look at linen. How much did you spend in linen this month? And I'm like, 5000 He's like, you're going to find $20,000 and 5000 Yeah. He's like, no. 
how much did you spend in food? Oh, I spent, you know, 180,000 in food. Oh, could you find 20,000 in 180? So it's like, you got to look in the, and he just taught me to kind of see that bigger picture. So you lose the numbers mostly in the bigger variables. Right. Okay. Right. We're, I'm chasing napkins yeah. and it doesn't matter. It's, you know, the, the big things like vendor your, prices, right, things your like cogs that. and your, um, and your labor. labor. That's yeah. where the big things were. And he's like, this is where you get savings or where there's an error. So what were the, let's drill down a layer deeper mm-hmm. in, in terms of cost of goods sold. What were the, th- the things that he helped you do to get this 20,000, this five points back? Um, well, just showed me where to, where to look and to see where there's, where there could be waste. But I didn't really have the system to do that. And that's going to be where RSP comes in. Okay. So um, let me quickly take you through the rest of it. So eventually TJ decides, um, well, he makes a joke. He's getting ready. He's doing some estate planning and he's getting ready to transfer the real estate that Rafino's restaurant sat on into a real estate trust for his kids. And he says, man, too bad you and Ruffin don't buy this property. It would be a great investment property. But he knew he was paying us a pittance, so we couldn't afford it. And I'm like, I would love the opportunity to try to buy it. So went to the, the banker who was doing our, our business banking, and he had he knew our numbers, but we brought him three years of P&Ls, and he's like, this will cash flow. I'll lend you the money to buy the property. So we start buying the property and we get close to closing. And then TJ's like, um, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know if I can be the, the operator and you be the landlord. Why don't you buy the operating company from me as well? Well, I didn't really do my due diligence and put pen to paper to see if we could afford taking on another note. I knew we could do the property. Um, but you didn't know if you could take the business on too. I didn't know if I could take the business note, but we wanted it so badly. What was the name of the business at this point though? Is there um, like a group, LLC? Ita- group Italian restaurants LLC okay. was the business. So you and your partners formed this business, um, that was separate from the actual physical assets, the building, the, Just the, the property, bu- the building was one thing and the business was something else. Got it. So and the, the property. So you were going to be buying the bit, the, the assets, the building, well, we were going to property. Be, we were going to be buying the property and, and the improvements the and building. all the things that are inside of it. The, well, that was owned by the, by the, um, the company, the company. Okay. So, TJ suggests that you purchase the business on top of that. How much more was the business? And he was, he was going to, um, finance. He was going to do owner financing. Okay. Cause he knew we couldn't get any more money. He was surprised we got the, the money for the property. Um, it was, it was a lot of money and I was broke. Um, it's a great story. I don't know if we have time. To oh, we have time, it. man. Oh, We're okay. here to tell your story. Get into it, please. So it's, it's going to be a lot of, a lot of money. And we, um, I had a lot of people who helped me, had some other um, business mentors who gave me great advice. Before you go any deeper, where is this? You open in 98, you sell in 2019. Where is this in that 20-year period? Five years in? It's probably 2012, somewhere around there. So like 15, what was that, 15 years in? Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Yeah, so somewhere twelve to fifteen. At this point, years the business is the business continuing to grow. Is it? Yeah. So we're so in terms of volume, we're at about we we started around two million. We've built it up to around four 
to four million dollars in sales. Annual revenue. Annual revenue. Wow. So it's it's doing well. And um so he we're gonna buy the property financed by the bank and then we're gonna buy the the um operating company as well. And so the day of the closing he does this thing called sophisticated real estate people call it a jam at closing. So he's going to change the terms of the deal on the day of closing because I'm already totally invested. I've spent all this money. I've got everything set up. What am I going to do now? Turn away and walk away. And, um, yeah, it was a very, very stressful day. My wife was a teacher and I had to call the school because she couldn't have her cell phone on. I had to call the school. They had to go get her out of class. And I'm like, TJ's screwing me at closing and I'm not going to continue to work for the company if this deal doesn't go through. So probably I'm going to be unemployed by the time you get out of school today. And she was just super, super supportive. She's like, this is your dream. You do whatever you have to. I'll get another job. We'll do, you know, whatever it takes. And I'm super supportive of me. And one of the, uh, one of the guys who had helped us with the deal was a big car dealer in Baton Rouge. And um, Ruffin said, uh, why don't we call him on the way to the closing? So I called him and I told him what was going on. And I just had all this passion because this was everything in my life. I had been working all these years for this company to for the chance to own it. And I wanted to, to buy it so badly. And now we're going to get it screwed on the last day. What was the change that he was asking? For? Is it too personal? Now, I don't even remember at the time what it was. It, it was something about he wanted his accountant in there for like six months. And I was going to pay him all this money. And it was just, it was something strange that we were adding to, he was adding to the deal at the end. And I'm like, why is he changing this? It's going to cost me an extra hundred or two hundred grand. Like I don't. Also, he's a multimillionaire. Too, yeah. At mm-hmm. this point, um, I'm not going to so, go any deeper there. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he. Uh, so the car dealer tells me, "Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go walk into his office. You're going to tell me everything with the same passion you just told him. Like I just told the car dealer. Yeah. And he's like, and then." You're going to shut up. And he's like, the next person who talks loses. Yeah. So I went into the, uh, and I'm the behind the scenes guy. Ruffin was always the front of the house, the face guy. But I went in, I pushed Ruffin's chair out of the way in front of TJ's desk. I sat my chair right in the middle and I told him the story and, you know, how he was screwing me after all these years and how much money I had made him and, and that he was going to jam me at closing. And then I just shut up and there was so much tension in the room and he spoke first and he kind of, he capitulated, he brought the number down. And so I said, okay, agreed. And then I, my attorney was standing right there. I'm like, can you get the documents redrawn right now? And he's like, oh yes, sir. I'll go do it right now. And TJ tried to say something. I put my hand up and I turned my chair sideways, sitting right in front of his desk and said, no, we're going to wait till the papers are done. Yeah. And so now we're all in his office in this room in complete silence and tension. And Ruffin used to play football for LSU. And he just says, how about them Tigers? <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of broke the, broke the tension, allowed us to get the documents drawn up, allowed us to do the sale. And um, we, got it, we got it done. Mm-hmm. 
Now, as soon as we left his office, he called the bank and transferred all the money out of the operating account. We didn't stipulate that that money had to stay in there. And he said he owned that money at the time. So he left us 20%, which was our money. He took 80% out. So we had no operating capital. Oh, my now, goodness. Just a little... I mean, I just don't understand what the benefit in that is. To some people, it's all a game. And so he wanted to, he wanted to win. Yeah. So then. um, So I'm going to ask you a question later. I might as well just ask you now. Or maybe we just kind of dance around the subject of, you know, there's a lot broken in the industry and the mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower, Mm -hmm. and transform the industry. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think this is one of those things that needs to be transformed? Is it is it a, a, a values thing where it's like it's not about winning; it's about helping other people win? Well, I think the industry is changing like that because yeah. you heard a lot of the stories today, and we yeah. all feel the same way about how we want to give people opportunities, yeah, and not that. But I think a lot of the old school people, it was always a game, always about winning, always about beating somebody, even if it was your own family member. They wanted to. They had to win. It was a numbers game. It was the game of business. And I think that that's really over like, you know, the, the, the second half of the 21st century is it all just went into like numbers. Like is it 21st, second half of the 20th century? Sorry. It just, it was all about numbers Mm -hmm. into the 21st century. And I think slowly we just realized we live in this transactional world where it's just Mm -hmm. about the numbers and not about the relationships. I think that where the pendulum swinging back and we're realizing, look, like, you can have all the money in the world. You can have your bus. Mm-hmm. You can have your plane. You can have your millions of dollars worth of assets and restaurants. But at the end of the day, if your business partners want to fucking kill you, yeah. <laughs> is it really worth it? You know? And I know it sounds terrible what he did, but he taught me so much and influenced me in a positive way so much. And I was able to separate the things I didn't like and I wouldn't do away from that. And I still think of him as a mentor yeah. and a friend, mm-hmm. you know. And he's somebody I think about every single every single day. Yeah. Still, is he and still in the game? Um, no, he passed away, but he's. Okay. I still think about him every day. Wow. And he influenced me and affected me so much, and I learned so much from him. But then there were things that I would never, I wouldn't do to to people. I learned that. No disrespect, too. TJ. Yeah, but um, <laughs> so now where we own the business and the property, and we have no money in the bank. And so the, the bills are coming due. Yeah. So earlier today, and I can't get into too much detail here, but in the, the mastermind, there was somebody talking about possibly selling their business. Mm-hmm. Um, and you gave some really great advice. Is this, does that stem from this relationship right here? It, no, it stems. It's, that's a story a little bit further down okay, when I it. sold Rafinos. Got it. But, got it. So now we just bought it and um, I've become not only the chef but also like the administrator i'm gonna handle the books and the payroll and the everything that his office was handling now i'm gonna have to learn on the fly how to do all this and luckily i've been paying attention yeah i was gonna say theoretically he should have been teaching you this whole time right right he wasn't teaching you the elements i i learned it i went in and figured it out because he wasn't going to volunteer to show me and um so we're into it just a few weeks, and all of a sudden I realize we're not going to make it. Why? Um, because of the operational costs? Yeah, because yeah. I couldn't afford the note yeah. for buying you the business. Liquid. 
I didn't have, we weren't making that much money yeah. um, to do that. So especially in tight times, like in good times would be fine, but in the summer, you know, it gets hot. Yeah. People and, don't go out. Right. Yeah. So, um, we're freaking out. And my, my partner Ruffin, one of his best friends is Todd Graves from Raising Canes. So he calls Todd and he says, I'm sure he was probably asking Todd that he may need to, to lend us a little money to get, to get us through. But, um, Todd says, you have to hire this consultant, somebody you've had on your show a couple of times. Um, Kathleen Wood. And he's okay. Like, you need to hire Kathleen Wood. And I'm like, Todd, I don't know if you heard what I said, but I can't afford payroll. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to pay for Kathleen Wood. He's like, man, if Kathleen doesn't make you 10 or 20 times what, what she cost, I'll pay for it. So there's no risk to you. So I'm like, I don't know how, how a consultant is going to help me out of this. And he said, look, you're, you're, um, you're focusing on so many things and Kathleen's going to narrow your focus like a laser and you're going to focus on the right things. So she flies in from Chicago. Now she had, she worked with Todd as a consultant. She also was the president of Raising Cane's for a number of years through Katrina and through all that. And then she had worked with another um, big restaurant company out of Baton Rouge called Walk-Ons and she had worked with them. And so now she's coming to work with with us, but we only hired her for two days. Walk-ons is a relatively new concept, isn't it? Um, yeah. So Brandon, one of the founders, yeah. Brandon Landry, he used to be a server at Rafino's. Oh, okay. Small and he world. left Rafino's and then opened Walk-ons. Sounds like I have so. a trip to uh, Baton Rouge planned. Yeah, right here he's an amazing. <laughs> I need to get some of these folks on. Todd the show. and Brandon are just yeah. amazing people and restaurateurs. So Todd basically makes it a no-brainer for me. I'll pay it if. Um, she doesn't make you all this money. So she flies in and Kathleen's super high energy and so smart. Like it's just so hard to keep up with her. And she comes in one of our little private rooms and puts these big white post-its all over. And she just starts firing off questions. And they're questions that I thought for sure I knew the answer to. So she asked like one of the big questions was Peter, what's your food philosophy? And so I'm like, Oh, that's easy. I serve local. Well, no, it's not all local. I serve scallops and lobster and not all the produce is grown here. I serve seasonal. No, I serve tomatoes year round and asparagus. Like, <laughs> and I, I started to say all the things that I thought were my food philosophies and they, they couldn't apply to every situation. Hmm. And she asked all these other questions and it was just so much. And she's just writing things furiously all over the room. And I can't figure out I can't make rhyme or reason of anything. And then finally, after hours, we take a, we take a 15 minute break. She's like, look, let's take a break. When you come back, there's going to be one word that's going to describe your restaurant. And I want you to think about that and give me the word when you get back. So I was the first one back in the room and she's like, did you think about the word? And I said, yeah, the word's passion. And she's like, not the word I had chosen for y'all. And I'm like, oh shit, I got that wrong too. <laughs> And then Ruffin comes in and he busts both the doors open. He's like, passion, that's the word. She's like, wow, I've never had a client with two partners choose the same word. She's like, passion's your word. And then it was like, it, the answers just started to come. Oh, my God, we, we hire people with passion. She could ask me, tell me about your top five servers. What do they have in common? And I couldn't, couldn't find one thing they had in common. Oh, my God, they all have passion. 
Passion and, for what? The, well, they had passion outside of the restaurant too. Like one of them was just like this expert on guns. He just a gun nut, knew everything about every kind of gun. Now police officer. Another guy um, was in Baton Rouge. He was a professional snowboarder. Do you know how passionate you have to be oh to be gosh. a professional snowboarder so with with sponsors and live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Yeah, well, I was going to say, why is he living in Baton Rouge? <laughs> like, Where is that, he snowboarding? Those are the kind of people we had working for us. And then it hit me. I'm like, oh, my God, I know my food philosophy. We sell food with a story. And she's like, that's it, food with a story. And so we um, – we just started to put those things together. And yeah. when she had left, we had this two page list of things we had to do. And all we focused on were the top two things. Mm. Food well, with the story and yeah. hiring people with passion. You, you're hitting a vein with me right now. And it's been like an echoing theme recently in my life. Uh, the, the words I use, and this is from the book traction mm-hmm. with the EOS, the, the entrepreneurial know operating well. system. Mm-hmm. Got Gino Whitman, Whitman. On the, scheduled to be on the show in a couple months. Oh, I'm wow. really excited. Yeah, it's going to be huge. But core focus. Mm-hmm. What is your core focus? What is the one thing that you do? And I think it's so easy to get spread out and to get distracted. And then if you just simplify things, if you distill who you are and what you do and you put all of your energy into your core focus, what mm-hmm. it is that you do better than anybody else, is that what she was doing for you? I don't want to put words, but like I don't want to get ahead. That's And that's that that laser like focus that Mm. she had. And so we didn't even reprint the menu. We just started telling the staff the story of the food. They started telling the guests the story of the food. And then instead of our normal hiring procedure, we started asking different questions. We started to say, have you ever won a championship? Have you ever like, what's your hobbies? What do you, and you see their eyes light up. Mm. And like, if they just like, yeah, I don't do anything. I just play video games. I don't, you know. I'm here to make money. Yeah, yeah. you know. Um, that was not the right people. And yeah. before, we used to say, oh, you work for them. They have a great training program. Yeah, we'll hire you. Or you work for that chef. Yeah, he's a real asshole. If you could, yeah, if could you lasted that. him for four <laughs> years, you got to be pretty good. That's how yeah. we hired people. Yeah. And we changed it to what they're what they were passionate about. And overnight, it seems, our business exploded. So we went from $4 million to about $6 million. Wow. Just focusing on people with passion and food with story. So how did you materialize that? So like you you got this core focus. We focus on story. We we focus on people with passion. But how did you transfer that to dollar bills? And so each server kind of took it and did their own thing. So we had one server who would come in seeing us cleaning a number one tuna and he'd take his phone and take a few photos of us cleaning the fish and he'd go to his table, you know, Oh man, chef source, this great, you know, number one sushi grade tuna. And he'd pull his phone. Like normally we don't allow phones. He'd pull his phone out of his pocket and he'd look, I took this picture. Yeah. It was things like that, you know, that, and it was just telling the story. Oh, do you know, um, our chef, he loves tomatoes so much. He drives down to St. Bernard Parish to buy, you know, Creole tomatoes for Mr. Gallo who's been growing tomatoes for his family for three generations. Like it would, it was those things that then made our restaurant stand out. So now you weren't eating a caprese salad. You were eating a caprese salad with John Gallo Creole tomatoes. Mm. Like 
That was the difference. And this when was this, 2018? No, you sold in 2018. It was yeah, 2015. So it was before then. Yeah. This is huge. Around this time is like when people really started to understand the power of story too. Mm-hmm. There's a consultant out there, um, the story brand. I Donald remember. Miller. Yes, out of Nashville, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, right there. Like people yeah. don't buy what you do. They mm-hmm. buy why you do it. Mm-hmm. And the best way to kind of to deliver that why is through story. Right. Uh, did you know that at this point or is it just kind of happening? Kathleen. Guided us in that direction with that. And again, it just came organically that she just facilitated the question. She just kept asking questions till we got to the the answer. Yeah. So she didn't give us the answer. She gave us the questions to Mm. get us to the answer that was in there the whole time. Mm -hmm. So once you found your core focus, how did you maintain it? Well, first, business exploded. So now we were just holding on for dear life because... We were so, and it wasn't we like were so busy. You guys and, were open for ten plus years at this point. Too. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. so that's amazing that you were most usually at ten plus years. Like that's where that law of diminishing returns starts mm-hmm. to really kick in, and the new shiny object takes over and distracts your regulars, and you lose mm-hmm. that loyalty. But so, so even even TJ, who remember I said everything was a game. Yeah, he had come in one night and he he told me he's like, Peter, I've been doing business in this town for sixty years. And no one's ever beat me. How did a guy like you beat me in this deal? I'm like, I didn't beat you in any deal. I paid full price. You should have given me a discount for working here all these years. I paid full price. He's like, but look how busy you are now. Look how much more money you're doing. Like he really expected us to fail. Wow. And, you know, for him, it's like I had beat him in this game. And I wasn't, I didn't even know I was playing the game. Yeah. I was just trying to to support my family. And so we did that better every day. Then we decide, Hey, if one restaurant's great, two would be even better. So we decide we're going to go to Lafayette, Louisiana. And, um, we get a real estate agent. We ride all over. We look at property. There's nothing we like. And the agent said, look, let's go have a drink at this place. And we go to, um, Donald, you know, Donald link is, He's like a very famous, he's like kind of like a culinary god in Louisiana, very famous chef. And he had a restaurant in Lafayette called Koshan. He's got one in New Orleans called Koshan as well. And so we go to Koshan to have a drink and we're like, oh my God, this restaurant would be perfect. Look at it. It's on the river. It's in the right neighborhood. Like it was just perfect. Like too bad this place isn't for sale. And then we're like, oh, well I heard they put like $10 million in this restaurant. I'm like, I don't know how to. I don't know how to operate a restaurant that can pay back $10 million. And um, three days later, I get a call on my cell phone, somebody representing Donald Link and said, hey, I heard you're looking for a restaurant in Lafayette. Would you be interested in Koshan? And I'm like, I would love to be interested in Koshan, but I don't think I could afford it. He's like, everybody thinks that. Let's talk. Yeah. Also, isn't it amazing how... If you just put your head down, and I, I say this all the time, people think about growth. They think externally. They don't put their energy into what they're already doing. Mm-hmm. They look outside for more channels of revenue. You put your energy into core focus. What You, you mm-hmm. narrowed your focus. You narrowed your energy. And you put it all into what do we do? What, do, what is our passion? Like What is, our, mm-hmm. what is the, the thing that describes us? And when you do that, when you put your energy into what you're already doing, make it a little bit better every day, make it better every mm-hmm. day, it's 
the fucking opportunities knock your door down. They do. And that's when growth comes is when, mm-hmm. when you're, when you attract it, you don't go out and get it. You, you, you attract it mm-hmm. onto yourself. Um, is it safe to say that's the approach you took? Absolutely. Yeah. And I try to learn something from everybody. Everybody offers a lesson. So Donna links a great example because, you know, Donna link had this restaurant coach in Lafayette and he was looking to sell it. And we're like, man, this guy just, what's going on? And so I just asked him why. And, you know, he started to tell me these things. He's like, well, you know, Koshan, because New Orleans Koshan's just so, so, so successful and so popular. And he's like, I'm not going to diminish my brand by, by changing it. He's doing the same thing that you did. Right. Core focus. And so. He's like, look, if this doesn't work in Lafayette, he's like, I could go create a new brand and put something else here. But he's like, why? I'm killing it, New Orleans. So he just, I said, so if you were going to do it over again, what would you do different? And he said things like, well, the front door is in the wrong place. We put it on the river because we thought everybody want to see the river. He's like, but you pull in the parking lot and you can't see the front door. And I'm like, hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, we're not reinventing the wheel here. Yeah. We're just... And so many people don't, if they take over a restaurant space, they don't ask the previous people what they would do different. Yeah. And throughout my career, especially now, opening these restaurants, that's the first thing I do. Hey, what would you do different? And they tell you the answers. Yeah, that's and a now, common question I ask all my guests. People, they see the finished product. They're like, oh, my God, you're a genius. I'm like, don't tell anybody. I'm not really a genius. <laughs> I just asked the last guy, what would you do different? Yeah, and I like, did that. What's, what are your regrets? And yeah. so he said, man, you know. Everybody here asks for Crown Royal, but I sell all these small batch bourbons and they want Camus and Silver Oak. But, you know, we're French. We sell all we sell French wines and they want steaks and they want all this beef. But it's Cochon. So we sell pork. And I'm like, oh, well, my brand already sells Crown Royal and California cabs and steak. Yeah. And, you know, just it was sort of serendipitous where they had an emergency exit. So they already had a wall penetration. I'm like, Oh, well that's where the front door's going. Like I didn't know, but I'm like, I'm not cutting another hole in the wall. We're just gonna make this one bigger. And where it was just, it was the perfect spot for the front door. And everybody who walked in just said, Oh my God, the restaurant's so gorgeous. And, they could see the river. It was amazing. So was this the second Rafinos that you opened? This is the second Rafinos. Okay. How many total Rafinos did you have? Two. Two. Gotcha. We had two and a catering facility. So but- you, you mentioned something earlier that when TJ was leaving, he was taking away his back office systems and processes. Mm-hmm. And you- well, this is where we get into RSP. Okay. Because now we're at two restaurants and me being the system, which I was when we had one restaurant, fell apart. Okay. So this is a, this is so classic because this is when people usually lose control is when they go from one to two because if mm-hmm. because it's a people or a person dependent operation if you're not there and that's exactly, exactly. what happened yeah. so we needed the systems and we knew what to do and we had good people in place but it just we were losing consistency if our focus was in Lafayette we lost the consistency in Baton Rouge and vice versa. So I had been getting these emails from this company back then. It was called Smart Systems Pro. Mm-hmm. And there was a, um, a seminar in Phoenix. And I'm like, you know what? I could use a couple of days. I'm going to go to this seminar in Phoenix. David Scott Peters was, I know he's been on your show a couple of times. Oh, yeah. He was doing the seminar. Even though I had had success with Kathleen Wood, I was still one of these guys who didn't believe in consultants. 
I'm like, you know, I thought this is a one-off. If Todd Graves would not have recommended Kathleen, I never would have used a consultant. And, um, you know, and think about the ROI on somebody like Kathleen, because we were at 4 million, went to 6 million. That's a 50% increase right there, but it wasn't 6 million for one year. It was 6 million plus after that. Then we opened another restaurant. Yeah. Now we're at 12 million. How much did she cost you? I'm curious. Um, I don't know if she'd like me to say, especially when it's, especially when it's broke, when you're broke, it yeah. was a lot but of money, at the same but time, it was definitely to... worth every penny. Yeah. And so I go to this thing and I'm just, I'm not expecting much, but I, I hear David talking and I'm like, this guy sounds like a real restaurant guy. Like it sounds like he really has been, he's done this. He's not just a consultant, Yeah. you know? And then at night we got to go out to dinner and actually one of the guys I met was Steve Brown. He was at the, um, he's one of the guys you met here. Yep. He's kind of the poster child for, um, smart systems pro or restaurant systems pro now. And I met him and I said, come on, does this thing really work? He's like, it absolutely works, but it only works if you do the system. If you cherry pick, if you try to change things, if you outsmart it, it will not work and you're wasting your money and you don't turn around and go home. Yeah. It's an ecosystem. All elements, you know, contribute to the, the, the Mm -hmm. entire, you can't just, you can't remove one element. Then the whole system collapses. Right. And so we had these restaurants, we had a couple of systems in place, but I'm hearing David talking about all these, the checklist and all these other things he's got. And the whole seminar was not even about the system. He spent 15 minutes on the second day. Hey, we got this computer system that does all the stuff we talked about. And Steve had said, look, if you really want it, it's, it's expensive, but you can hire Fred Langley. Fred was doing the consulting then hire Fred and that will buy you speed and you can get set up in a few months and start making money down. Fred doesn't mind if I tell you he was 10,000 a month, which that's a lot of money. Yeah. And so I'm like, man, 10,000 a month. But if it works, cause they tell you, you should be able to run a 55 prime. I laughed. I told him I'll kiss your ass on bourbon street. If I can get to a 55 prime, <laughs> Um, because, um, (laughs) and I probably owe that to David, I guess, but, uh, (laughs) you know, we were running a 65 plus at the time and I'm just thinking that's pretty good. I'm just, I mean, it's for, for industry standards, your, your prime costs, you get taxed after that. Mm -hmm. I mean, what was your, do you mind me asking what your profit was before they came in? Um, well, our profit was like, you, you heard a couple of people telling stories today. Hey, this month I made a lot of money and this month I lost money Yeah, and there was no, I couldn't figure out the rhyme or reason behind it. It was just sort of hit or miss. And we had to wait for like two or three weeks for your books to come back from the, um, from the accountant to know if you made money and if you had a problem. So, um, those were like the issues we were facing. And so I listened to the thing and they said, hire Fred and Fred will get you speed. And, um, it was very frustrating And Fred has this thing. He talks about the karate kid and he's like, we're going to give you these things to do. You're going to start with end of day reports. You're going to start building recipe cards. You're going to start doing the labor allotment. You're going to start doing all these things. You're not going to see how they all fit together until, um, 
you know, it's going to take a few months, but just trust me, it's wax on, wax off. He was teaching Daniel how to do karate and Daniel was waxing the, <laughs> the you know, painting the fence yeah. and mopping the floor and waxing the car. That's all I need you to do. You just do the steps and you're going to learn the system. And we were a couple of months in and um, $20,000 yeah. in and I'm not seeing the needle move. And so Fred was due for a visit and he comes in to one of the restaurants and I'm, I'm just very direct. And I tell him, you know, everybody said how great the system is and I'm doing all the stuff and we're doing everything and it's not working. And he's like, Peter, it's working. Let me, let me show you. And this was before the, the system was completely built. He was still taking the, taking some of the stuff and exporting them into spreadsheets. So what is now we refer to as the usage report. Fred used to download it and put it into Excel and then manipulate it. And so he takes five minutes. He's like, all right, your problem is in ribeye in one of my restaurants. So I have two. He's like, you're $900 um, short in ribeye. I'm like, no way. Absolutely impossible. I, I don't believe it. And he's like, well, let's go start with a yield test. So you're saying you lost $900 in your ribeye. You're losing. He, Fred's telling me yeah. I lost $900 in ribeye in one restaurant wow. in a week. Wow. That adds up. And I'm like, no way. So we go back and Fred's like, hey, since you're such a good butcher, you're going you're gonna to cut the ribeye and we're going to take your cutting to do the yield on it. As soon as they put the ribeye in front of me, I see the problem. They bought. One of my guys switched our spec and bought ups instead of downs. So what's, Do you know what that is? No. Explain, please. So um, ribeyes come in ups or downs. So you can get like a 15 and down or a 15 and up. Okay. Well, in the beef industry in the past several years, they're leaving cows on the field a lot longer to get more weight. Yeah. So they get more, to get more money. Yeah. Well, if you take a ribeye off of a cow, the eye can be really big. So if you're, we sell ribeyes by weight. So we were selling like a 16 ounce ribeye. Well, if you had a 20 pound, I mean, um, yeah, a 20 pound ribeye instead of 15 or below, when you cut it, you got this really thin ribeye at, um, 16 ounces. Well, a thin ribeye doesn't cook worth the shit. Doesn't taste. Yeah. The meat can be good. It can grade well, but you want a nice thick steak. And the problem with a really big eye like that, when you cut it, if you're off just a millimeter, that's an ounce or two. Wow. So as soon as we started cutting, and like I said, I grew up butchering beef. Yeah. Every steak I cut was off and it was over. Wow. And I'm like, Oh my God, you're right. That's how we lost. Like if you, we started adding what the yield was. He's like, if, if everybody cut like you, that's how you lose $900 in one week on one product. And I was a believer that this guy flew in from Phoenix in five minutes, told me my problem in one, in one thing. So just like Stan had told me, quit looking at linen. Fred told me, I'm going to print you your usage report. You need to look at the top eight items. That's it. Yeah. All of your problems are in those items. Yeah. I would say probably the majority of that was probably in the top two items. Yeah. So ribeye was yeah. number one. Yeah. That's where the problem, that's where the main yeah. problem was. And so once we 
because we were doing the things, but we weren't implementing it fully. So we hadn't gotten to usage reports. Once we got to usage reports, we find the problem. I chew out my um, salesman for allowing my guys to change my spec from a down to an up because they thought they were saving me 50 cents a pound. Uh, like, oh, chef, we're helping saved you 50 cents. No, you didn't. You cost me 900 bucks a week in one restaurant. <laughs> but I mean, how, who wouldn't know that? I mean, I who feel like that's just that? one of those things that's like, unless you're really, so exactly what is going on to get to that point? You're measuring, you're weighing, like what exactly? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're doing the system. So when your invoices come in, you're, you're coding them back to the um, coding. So back to the coding, but so you had, I had to trust. So when I was with TJ, we coded each food category a different code so beef was one poultry was one pork was one veal was one shrimp was one fish was one and when i got with rsp they're like oh no you're just coding food and i'm like oh no you guys don't understand and they're like we hear this from everybody and then they they showed me so like in december we sold steaks that had crab meat on top and when it went into sales, it all went into beef, but it was beef with crab. So you weren't getting an actual cost on beef anyway. So we would just excuse it. We're like, oh, well, in December, our beef cost is better because they're like, so it doesn't, you don't have actionable information mm-hmm. here. We're going to save you all this time and, and heartache. We're just going to code food and not each category, but we're going to have a usage report. So we'll know how much you bought. We'll have your beginning inventory, your purchases, your ending inventory. And then we're going to take your sales and we're going to see how much you should have used. So that's what we call ideal cost. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I also did, did a little restaurant consulting. And whenever I talk to people, they're like, oh, well, you know, food cost is supposed to be 28% or 32% or whatever. Everybody has this number that they think food cost is. I don't have a number because food cost is what food cost is. The real number you should manage is prime. Mm. So if your food goes up, your labor has to go down. Take a steakhouse. Like maybe a, a Ruth's Chris might run a 40% food cost. Well, you might say, oh, my God, 40% is high. But look how low their labor could be. Mm. Their labor could be 15%. Their check average is really high. They don't need as many cooks in the kitchen for a steakhouse. Yeah. Like you can still run that prime, even with a high food cost. So it's, it's not about just food cost and hitting some certain number. The, to me, the real measure is you have to know what your ideal or theoretical cost is and what your variance is. What's your actual versus your theoretical. So what's a good, give me an example of a good spread of what your actual theoretical. So what we normally say is 2%. So if, if your ideal food cost should be 30%, if you're running 32. Ideal then, or theoretical. So No, if your ideal is 30, yeah. your actual is 32, then you're doing good. a good job. Because Within nobody's, perf- nobody's yeah. perfect. You're going to have Things are gonna some happen. waste and some miscuts and refires and those kind of things. So you're you treating somebody especially. Yeah, you give yeah. 2% 
That's what I do. I give 2% on cost. Got it. That's what we look for. I think the other big part of what this is, and you kind of identified it when you were saying when uh, Fred came in to kind of coach you through, is like just go through the motions, mm-hmm. go through the process, go through the steps. You were going through that those steps. But once you master those steps and once you understand the process, you can then turn and go to the next person in line and say, just trust the process, just trust the steps. That, and that's what we do. And then that's, and that's, but you have to go through it first, right? And then you can, but now the, you are going through the system. Now you are dependent on the system. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you're dependent on the system is you can step out of the system Absolutely. and put another person into it. And Absolutely. that's how you get to scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's exactly what we that's exactly what we did. But even if you're one restaurant, you still who wants to to manage their restaurant based on gut? And yeah. that's what I did my whole life. Oh, I feel this food cost is a little high. I feel it. I don't know it. I can't prove it. Now I can prove it. Now yeah. I know what my theoretical should be. So the story doesn't end there, though, because you do end up selling. Right? Yeah. So what was the reason for that? Two years, um, three years after doing so well. Par- well actually, partner and I just went in a different. Um, can we talk about numbers before we talk about that? Like okay. after bringing Fred on in Restaurant Systems Pro, mm-hmm. you were at six million. Mm-hmm. Now we're, we're you, at you increased your profit by million. 50 percent. Mm-hmm. Twelve to thirteen million. So in you sales. Yeah, because we opened another restaurant. Wow. So quadrupled mm-hmm. here since since taking ownership. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. All that came from. So you opened the second restaurant. So now, you, so collectively, you also have another outlet. So you're right. doubling volume basically. Mm-hmm. And that's where the systems became so important because I couldn't be in all the places at one time. So what was so you so you started getting into it. The reason for leaving is because uh, the we just we kind of direction just like vision was married off. couples. Yeah grow apart i guess we just i wanted to grow and he didn't and we just we just couldn't kind of see eye to eye on that there were some other things that i don't want to yeah really get into but you know um so we just we had a mediator come in and we um after that mediation he was just like hey i'd like to buy you out i'm like Okay. And I thought I was a chef. I had the skill. And just one more thing I want to mention. My time at Rufino's was the greatest ever. It's what I think every chef would want. I got to cook everything I wanted. I I wrote a cookbook. I wrote a cookbook. I cooked at the James Beard house a few times. I was on TV all the time. I got to do Everything I wanted and everything I did helped the business continue to grow and grow and grow. And so I felt I kind of had a personal brand. I knew what I was doing and coming, to these, and coming to these RSP meetings in this elite group, you could see that you could take somebody who had a, had a restaurant that may be a good concept, but that wasn't um, making it financially. And if you just put the systems in. And you just follow like the teachings. It you turn every business around. It becomes about math. Mm. It becomes about numbers. Can you can you do that? Can you get your prime cost here? And I think I was starting to tell you this. I just because I didn't like consultants, I'm just like, oh well, they're going to tell me switch from prime beef and go to select. That'll save me some money, you know. Never, never, never once did they say reduce quality. It's not about your, your food cost. It's not about the price you're paying. It's about 
your mismanagement of the items, right? Because so right now we're in inflationary time. Prices are going up with the system. We can project. We know prices are going up. We see what happens. We can adjust our price to make the price right. Yeah. And I think that's a big issue with our industry is owners are so afraid to increase price. I think that needs to stop. I think the consumer needs to be on the hook for the the cost of increase mm-hmm. for inflation. Like, it's like why should the restaurant owner be on the hook for it? But you can't have a crappy experience and a high price. Yeah. You know, and well, you also can't give a good experience and not make any profit because how the hell are you going to pay your people? How mm-hmm. you can't you got to make money to pay right. your people to deliver the good experience too. So I think it's one of those things where like you can't expect to do well if you're barely scraping to get by. If you're barely mm-hmm. having money coming, you need the money to pay the people to do the to, to have the best people on your team. Right. right? This is another kind of writer downer yeah. that TJ taught me. He's like um, value is not a number. It's a feeling. Mm. All right. So most people think it's a number. They're like, Oh my God, we can't charge more than $20 for this. That's a number. Yeah. And he had steakhouses all over the country. He had a, he had a um, steakhouse in um, river North in Chicago. So it's not about the number you can charge $60, $70 for a steak and your restaurant can be packed and it's a good value. It's not that it's a $70 stake. It's that the experience was worth the money you paid. Yeah. And I feel, being a chef, I feel that way about food. When I buy certain products, they seem really expensive. I'm like, worth every penny. Yeah. So after you sold your portion of the business, what was next for you? So Also, how happy so there you was that you some, sold a year before the pandemic? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the, you know... The sale was tough, just yeah. as I would assume a divorce is is tough because we were best friends for 20 years and, you know, you start to get into the sale and then he wants the price to be lower. I want the price to be higher. We didn't set that up ahead in the operating agreement. And that's the first thing I do now and I tell everybody else, sign the prenup while you're still in love. Figure out how you're going to value the business and how to get out. Because now everything I do, like when I did this restaurant, I thought I was going to be in it forever. I never imagined selling. But now I'm like, you never know what happens. I'm going to do this as long as I enjoy doing it. And I don't have to do it forever. So how can I get out? How can I sell? One of my partners, I know his son wants to get into the restaurant business. So in the operating agreement, I set it up that, hey, before I go sell it to anybody else, he gets first dibs at it because I don't want to break the family up and bring somebody else in just for money. Like if, if he wants the business, he gets shot at me and he wants to take me out. I'm happy to be taken out. And, but we set it up in advance. So now there doesn't have to be bad blood about how we value it and how fast we're going to get paid and all those things. Very important. Now, if we're setting this up, if we're going into a partnership, we want to leave ourselves an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. What words do you need to include in the partnership agreement? Well, you need to talk about valuation. How are you going to value something 20 years down the road? Because I was at Rafino's for 20 years. How do you know where you can't set the price today? I mean, you could, but you hope the value is going to go way up. So yeah. how do you set that, that price? And most of the things I do now, we do it as a multiple of EBITDA. And we agree that on January 1st, our accountant, 
our mutually agreed upon business accountant is going to tell us what the EBITDA is from the prior year. What's the EBITDA stand for? Um, earnings before income, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. Got it. And it's it's basically cash flow. Mm-hmm. But you add back in like depreciations and non-cash expense. You add that back in. You add in interest and those kind of things. Got it. And so um, you you normally buy or sell a business based on EBITDA. So that's most how people, to calculate value. Most people want to buy it at three times EBITDA. Most people want to sell it at about five times EBITDA. So like in my agreements, we say, well, let's just call it four. Yeah. So the CPA determines yearly, this is what EBITDA was. And so we know if we want to get out in this year, it's four times that number. That's what the value is. There are other ways that are interesting. So there's something called push pull. So if you and I were business partners and I want to get out, I would come up with the number and then you would decide buy or sell. Mm. It makes me offer you a fair number. I'm not going to lowball you. Yeah. Cause then you'll say, Oh, buy. Yeah. And now you get to buy me for a low number, but there's a number of ways you can do that valuation. And the way that you did it with your partner was, Oh, we didn't, you didn't, we had to fight. Oh, because you didn't build that into, we didn't build partners. that in. Cause we got didn't it. think we were getting divorced. Got it. Got it. Yeah, man. Well, that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. I, so many people say, don't, don't get a partner or don't go into business with friends or I, family or whatever. I love having a partner. I don't think you could do it alone. I mean, the industry has gotten so competitive over the past 15 years with the access of information that's out there. Like there's really no excuse to not be a high functioning restaurant. The resources that are at mm-hmm. your disposal. And I think the expectation from the consumer is higher than ever before. Mm-hmm. So how can you be expected to be good at everything to be in every lane? You know, right. like that's just so hard to do. I, I can't imagine going through COVID by myself. Yeah. Yeah, man. It was you, such a hard time. Just mentally, you need somebody there to mm-hmm. offload on, to go through it with, to lean on, to, right. hey, I need a break. Can you can you pick up some slack mm-hmm. so or you know, take on a little extra so I can just, I, you know, I had surgery or whatever it is. My, my mom died or whatever, you know, family passed away. Mm-hmm. Like whatever it is, like you, you need a partner. You need somebody. We're not meant to go it alone. We're, mm-hmm. we're tribal animals, you know, like we need a, a, a team around us. And honestly, I use it as a crutch. Yeah. So let's say we were talking about working out. So I, sh- I know I should work out and eat right and do this, but yet I don't do it on my own. But if we decided, hey, we're going to be accountability partners, we're going to work out every day, I would never miss a workout. I would never be late because I'm not going to let you down. Yeah. And I do that with my partner. It's easier now. to let yourself down. I can let myself yeah. down, but I can't let somebody else down. Yeah. So I'd get a partner and I'm going to go till the end of the earth and have that tenacity that my dad taught me to never let them fail and never let them down. Yeah. Can you believe we're almost at an hour and 40 minutes of recording wow. time? It goes by so mm-hmm. fast. I still have one more of these I have to record before the end of the night. So we got to think about wrapping it okay. up. But um, before we say goodbye, before we wrap up the free flowing portion of, of the today's conversation, um, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Mm-hmm. How have you transformed personally since the day you got into this industry to the man you are today? Oh my God. It's been such a, um, such a transition, but I think it's, it's trying to learn something from everybody and so many people, um, including yourself. I mean, you, we talked about this, yeah, that, you know, it blows my mind still. When we first met, I said, man, you cost me a lot of money because I, I heard some people on your show <laughs> and, and I ended up hiring them. And immediately I was yeah. like, Oh shit, what did I do? Like who did like, but no, it actually it was, turned out well for it you. It was great. It yeah. was great things. That John happened. Buchanan, correct? John Buchanan. Yeah. yeah. And Let so, us entertain you. And I mean, is there a better restaurant tour than, than Rich Melman? And I mean, I got to, 
I got to meet Rich Melman. And I mean, you talk about a guy, if there was ever a guy who was going to be cocky about being in the restaurant business, it should be Rich Melman. Yeah. Every award's named after him. He's got one of the biggest restaurant companies ever. He does. When I met him, he tried to learn stuff from me. And I'm like, He's, what the hell do you want to learn from teach me? You? Yeah. Well, it teaches you about humility, and you can yeah. learn something from exactly from everybody. Yeah, and I gotta get him on the show before it's too late. Mm. How old is he now? Well, he's kind of retired. He, li- I think, he lives in Arizona. Okay, but um, his son RJ runs it, and I got to meet RJ, and I was at dinner with RJ one night, and um, he said, uh, he's like, "Hey, we're opening a new restaurant." It was right before Bub um, City Grill opened in Chicago. And he's like, you want to go over there and check it out before it opens? I'm like, hell yeah, let's go see it. And so we walk over there and Rich Melman is there. And I had already heard that Rich had this thing he did before he opened restaurants where he takes a yellow legal pad and he sits down in every seat in the restaurant and makes notes about maybe how the sun, the setting sun's going to come in or if the air vents blowing. And I had heard kind of this legendary story about that. And I walk in and he's got the yellow legal pad and he's, it's 10 o'clock at night and he's sitting in this new restaurant taking notes on everything and just such an amazing guy with such humility and just, I mean, offered me everything and, you know, and I I had such a great, great experience dealing with his consulting company and getting management training and John Buchanan's just, just great. And I think like his best line is when, we were learning from him and we were kind of pushing back because, you know, we think we know a lot about the restaurant business. He's like, Hey buddy, you called me. I didn't call you. And if you want the results that we get, then you do it the way we do it. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to shut up now and learn from somebody who knows what they're talking about. Yeah, man. Um, did you answer the question about how you transformed? I think I derailed. Well, you. I think that was, <laughs> I think over time, that's how I transformed going from a mom and pop place yeah. into, you know, now I have, um, six restaurants. I mean, our, our goal one day is maybe to get to 20, wow. but, um, you know, it's, um, it's just been a great ride. I've got some great partners and I think it's all about relationships. Yes. You know, that's and, what business is all, but think about a, mm-hmm. a, what we call it company, right? What else do we call company? We have people over. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we're having company over. Like that's all it is. It's just company. It's the people mm-hmm. you surround yourself with. It's your company. It's who you are doing mm-hmm. business with. It's relationships. It's company. And it's all about relationships. And I mean, our, our why, like Simon Sinek tells you have your why it's to make someone's day every day. Yeah. And that's what we try to do. And we do it through food. And I just think restaurants are so important. Yeah. On a higher level, again, to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. What do you think needs to transform about our industry today? Where, where are um, we? And what needs to change? So I'm very involved in the Restaurant Association. I was um, former chair of the Louisiana State Restaurant Association. And so dealing, like, especially politically with a lot of the issues and things we deal with, one thing is we're, we're – we're caught up in some old archaic ways of doing business. Mm. Some, some of them are the way we pay people. Some of them are the benefits that we offer or don't offer. Um, some of it's the training and like the big thing for our company right now is, um, leadership development. We find especially post COVID that's what people want. They don't want just their job. They want more than the job. They want to be able to grow as a person. Yes. And so we're investing a ton of money. Well, we hope it's going to pay off in leadership development. 
I love that. Awesome stuff, man. Great conversation. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. We're going to bust out a true speed round. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. It's no secret that restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines, like can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. With the Pop Menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and you can choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow-up links via text message pop menu answering picks up your phone 24 7 365 days a year allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering and for a limited time my listeners can get 100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off for your first month and learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Um, probably that tenacity I learned from my dad to never give up. What is your biggest weakness? Um, that sometimes I think I know it all. What is one question you ask or one thing you look for when you're interviewing, growing your team? So I want to know like what excites them, what their passion is. And I'll, for, for chefs, I'll often want to know what's your best food memory. Mm. And usually it's not about the food. It's about a connection to a person. Yeah. Uh, what, you just made me think of my favorite food memory of my grandmother. Yeah, it's, it's my powerful. grandfather and tomatoes. My, my, my and grandmother I tear up every time I think about it. My grandmother and lumpy potatoes, lumpy smashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. I complimented her lumpy mashed potatoes once, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize 
that mashed potatoes. Yeah. Supposed to be <laughs> but they were so good and they're grandma's mm-hmm. mashed potatoes. And that's how I like my mashed potatoes because it's a memory. Mm-hmm. You know, what is your biggest challenge today? Um, labor. How are you overcoming it? Through training and leadership development. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. It's a core value, a way to be, a way to act. So the number one core value we we talk about constantly is caring. Mm-hmm. But what I try to get through to them is caring's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. So as a company, we care about the team member as much as we care about the guest. But I need the team member to care about the company back equally. Yeah. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service? So something that you do that's standard in, within the four walls of your restaurants, but not standard throughout the industry to go above and beyond. Um, we do cotton candy at the end of the meal at all of my restaurants. It's that little something extra. It's a great way to just end a meal. It's, it's not expensive, but it elicits a really deep emotion from people. Mm. What is one book that's a must-read that makes it better personal or restaurant owner? Um, the book that I recommend the most is called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Have you heard of that? I haven't. The first time I mentioned on the show. There are a couple of um, former Navy SEALs who are now in business, and they, they list all of the, the lessons that they learned teaching um, in SEAL training, teaching SEALs. And um, extreme ownership is about you owning everything in your life. Mm. Like it's all your fault. Yeah. Even the good things. So when something good happens, it's your fault. But when something bad happens, it's your fault. And I think that's my biggest pet peeve when working with managers. As soon as they start to blame other people, it's like, whoop, hold on. Let me give you this book. Yeah. Go read it first. Yeah. It's extreme ownership and you know, I tell them it's, I'm not trying to collect a number of things wrong you did, but if you don't own the issue, we can never fix it. Yeah. If it's someone else's issue, then we have to wait on them. If you own it, whether you personally did it or not, you know, cause as the owner of the restaurant, I have to own everything. Every, um, complaint comes to me. It reflects on me. I have to I didn't train enough. I didn't support enough. I didn't explain enough. I didn't do something. I have to own it. Yeah. Even though I didn't do it. I love it. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Own it. Um, yeah, I think, I think that. And yeah. again, I think it's about humility because we we're in this business. We work so hard. We see some success and then we think we know the answer. Yeah. And I think we, there's always something to learn and things are so different, especially now from just a couple of years ago. If you're still running your business the same way you did two or three years ago, you're doing something wrong. Mm. What is one piece of technology you've recently developed or adopted within your restaurants? That's just had a huge influence on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines. Well, of course, the biggest one for me is RSP, the yeah. Restaurant Systems Pro. Yeah. But that's a really big system. But other than that, I think it's um we use Slack as a communication tool and we we recently um, implemented that like in the last six months. I want to do like a Slack best practices episode because yeah. it keeps on coming up on the show. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and I will say uh, that Restaurant Systems Pro gave me a special link. Um, we're uh, going to put that in the show notes. If you guys are interested in Restaurant Systems Pro, please use that link. They are an affiliate. They will pay me a $500 commission. And uh, thank you very much for using those links. You're supporting the show. And honestly, I've been really impressed with Restaurant Systems Pro. So a little context is here. So Fred Langley, uh, somebody, David Scott Peters, which are my listeners, you've all heard Dave. He's been on the show four times now. Uh, Fred's going to come on the show later this week. Uh, I never had somebody officially call out or recommend Restaurant Systems Pro on the show. And I was like, I want to help you guys out, but we need to get some organic mm-hmm. testimonials. I'm like, people who you've helped. And we've been, ever since kind of just like opening that door, I've just been so blown away at just how how grateful people are that you're using restaurant systems pro for that technology and how much it's helped their business. Mm-hmm. And you talked about it today. So. Right. But everybody who's used it and been successful has to follow the whole system. Cause some people are like, Oh, I don't want to use the scheduling. I like yeah. seven shifts or I like, you know, I mean, I've used all those things before they don't integrate and talk to each other. Yeah. That's the, the key. And if you cherry pick it, you're not going to have success. Yeah. Um, so this is the last question I have for you. It's a doozy, so open your ears. Okay. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants will be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? So got to start with make it better every day. One. Um, it's um, about relationships. Two. And quality, quality, quality. I have loved this conversation, Peter. Thank you so much. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who do you respect and admire? And I know you listen to the show and that still blows me away that people as achieved as yourself, listen to my show. Thank you so much for your support. But if we got somebody on the show or two or three people on the show and you, you would absolutely listen to that episode. If we got these people on the show, who are those people for you? So, you know, you talk about your mission to inspire mm. people. I think there are two people who are really super inspiring to me. One is Todd Graves from Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers, and the other one's Brandon Landry from Walk-Ons. Yeah, and both of those names have been recommended. They've came up in past conversations. They're leaving an impact. They're leaving a legacy. I would love to get those guys on the show. Um, and I'm due for a trip to New Orleans. So um, well, you have to go to Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge guys. isn't <laughs> that far away. It's, I mean, I, I got... Uh, Susan Spicer that I need mm-hmm. to get on the show. I got these two gentlemen that I'm in for. I'm, I'm, I'll be there soon, probably before the end of the year. And I'd love to reconnect with you when I'm in town. And how can we connect with you? If we've um, really enjoyed today's conversation, we have questions for you. What's mm-hmm. the best way to connect? Um, my email is Peter at MRFHG.com, like making raving fans, hospitality group.com. You Beautiful. can go to the website on I, social media. I think this is episode 914. Don't quote me. Um, I don't have Wi-Fi right now and I can't check my notes, but I think it's going to be episode 914. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 914 plus or minus a number. I might be slightly off and you can find a summary of today's conversation, any links to tools or services recommended, including affiliate links and how to connect with Peter over there. Again, Peter, thank you so much. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Peter Sclafani, for coming on the show, for sharing your story. And man, what I liked about today's conversation is the contrast between how your 
running your business or how you ran your business compared to a direct mentor who, uh, I mean, you could have chosen to go that path of, of, you know, winning or like, you know, playing the game of business and really having it come down to just numbers and how you can beat other people. But at the end of the day, it's not about how many people you beat. It's about how many people you help win. And I think that that came out in today's conversation and um, just awesome stuff. Thank you so much, Peter Sclafani. And uh, speaking about helping people win, uh, you know, I was in Illinois and Wisconsin, right on the border over the past last week, I was flown out by Restaurant Systems Pro to be a fly on the wall of their elite mastermind uh, because honestly, you know, I'm trying to do the work to uh, find the right companies to partner with and to promote. And uh, when Restaurant Systems Pro approached me to be a sponsor on the show, I said, we got to get people talking. We, we need testimonials. And holy crap, have we gotten testimonials over the past couple episodes? Uh, we had it with Alan Beadle. We had it with Rod. Rigo Souza. Uh, we had Peter Sclafani today. We have uh, a couple more episodes coming up. I've just been really overall super impressed with Restaurant Systems Pro. Not only their ability to help restaurants, but the community they build around the software. And I think a lot of the other solutions out there, you, you get the, the software, you get the technology, but there isn't the support you need. And I've just been so blown away with the support that is extended over at Restaurant Systems Pro to their clients and their and their customers. It's just really impressive. Uh, amazing culture. So if you guys are interested in Restaurant Systems Pro, be sure you head over to the show notes, restaurantunstoppable.com slash 915. Uh, use those links because they're going to pay me a commission of $500 for every new member that signs up. And if you sign up right now, uh, you can get 60 months of, or sorry, 60 months, 60 days of training. That's huge. So get over there, get on it. Thank you in advance for using my links. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.